Hello, and welcome to the latest IDMS pod. This month, we're speaking to consultant healthcare scientist Joe Horn about her work and health and well-being in the pandemic, after which we catch up with Sherry Beckett in Lab Life. But first, as always, the news. Hi, I'm Ella, Communications Officer for the IBMS, and here's this month's latest news and updates. Bookings for Congress 2022 are now open. The event will take place in Birmingham from the 14th to the 17th of March 2022 with the theme of Science and Celebration. Announcing the event, IBMS President Alan Wilson said, After a year like no other, we have so much to be proud of. Let's make Congress 2022 a celebration of our science and our central role in the delivery of healthcare. For a premium early booking discount and more information, check out the newly launched Congress 2022 website at congress.ibms.org. Also this month, the IBMS has awarded its three most prestigious membership honors. Congratulations to our new honorary fellow, Fern Ferry, new honorary member, Fiona Sellers, and two new life members, Alan Wainwright and Sarah Pitt. In other news, the NHS will begin a trial of do-it-at-home cervical screenings called U-Screen. President Alan Wilson, a cervical cytology expert, told the IBMS the majority of cancers are now found in women who have either never attended a screening or are poor attenders. Targeting this group of women with a test that has proved to be more acceptable will help the UK screening programs further reduce incidence and mortality. The IBMS has been striving to provide the best coverage, guidance, and support for our members throughout the pandemic. A new video outlining some of the progress the IBMS has made on behalf of our members this past year is now available on our website. You can find the link to the video and more information on all our news stories in the show notes. Okay, hello and welcome to episode five. And we're with Dr. Joe Horn, who's a consultant healthcare scientist at University Hospital Southampton NHS Trust in gastrointestinal and hepatobiliary histopathology. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. It's great to have you on. So could you start by telling us what is gastrointestinal pathology and why is it so important? Um, well, it's a branch of histopathology. And um, when you work in histopathology, you um, can deal with lots of different organ systems. And gastrointestinal is just one of those. Um, we tend to call it GI because it's easier to say. Um, and HPV is hepatobiliary, and that just fits with gastrointestinal because the organs are near to each other uh, in the abdomen. Um, and that's the area that I specialize in and have had an interest in um, many years now. Mm. And what kind of samples typically do you process in the lab? Um, so in histopathology, it's generally biopsies, which are small pieces of tissue, one to two millimetres, and they're usually from endoscopy, um, and they're usually diagnostic, um, but they can also be as part of monitoring uh, disease. All the way up to the other end where we have um, big resections of abdominal organs. And because I work in a really big centre, that isn't always a, a straightforward case. That can often be quite a complex section with multiple organs. Um, and that's usually due to cancer. And as the consultant in the lab, then, what is the remit of your role and some of the like, main responsibilities within your department? I'm one of the team, one of the consultant team within my department. And I'm 
special, I guess you can say, because I'm the only scientist member of the consultant team. And I was appointed just over a year ago now. Um, and so the majority of people in the consultant team will be medical histopathologists. And there are, I think, seven. And so I'm the, the seventh or the eighth person. I can't quite remember, but I'm the, the scientist of the team. And so I do really similar work to the medics. Um, and there are some aspects of their role that I don't do. And there are some things that I do which aren't related to the kind of clinical job that pathologists don't do. So it's really interesting. And I think I bring a kind of a new a new angle because I've got that foot in the laboratory. Um, so it's kind of a different angle. And I have um, sort of quite good um, connections and liaison with the clinical teams as well as the laboratory teams. So it's really nice fit. I kind of fit across different worlds and sort of join them together, really. I was wondering as well if you could kind of run us through the dissection process in the lab just briefly, just to kind of have an outline of process that you guys go through. Yeah. So for biopsies, those are handled in the, the lab by colleagues. And so I don't see those until I see the slide. Um, but for the larger specimens, anything from an appendix up to a, a large sort of abdominal resection will come to me. And if I'm rostered on that day, and essentially it comes in a pot of formaldehyde, um, and I will take samples of that after I've looked at it. So I'll do, you know, mess at things like describing what it looks like and measuring it. Um, and then I will take samples um, to represent any abnormalities. And there are, you know, a group of sort of standard abnormalities you see in different organ systems. But the exciting thing about the dog is often you see um, different things, unexpected things. So it's very much about just sampling a representation of all the different things you see. And as well as the abnormal areas, you also sample normal areas um, to compare and contrast. Um, and usually then it will go through the, the lab, so it'll be processed. You have sections cut and stained. And then at that point, a few days later, I see the slides again. And so I'll then pick those up and look at them down the microscope. Um, and often those um, the blocks and slides, I'm sort of comparing them and they're showing things that I've identified when I've dissected it. But sometimes you get surprises, things you're not expecting. Um, and then you form your report from that. And often you have to go back and take more tissue, but sometimes you can report it there and then. It really depends. Mm. And what was the reporting process like? Because you were the first person to complete a professional qualification in reporting, weren't you? Mm. The first time I ever authorised something on my own was really scary and I'll probably they said to me you won't forget that and I I haven't because it is quite scary that that sort of um kind of independent and that responsibility mm. pressing that button and knowing you're responsible for that case is it's really psychologically challenging at first to be honest mm. um but then you like anything you just get used to it you never forget the amount of responsibility you have um and the you know the the most important thing is I work as part of a team. And so that often involves asking other people what they think about things, showing people slides, having discussions. So it's, it's a very safe process, very rewarding as well. And could you tell us some of the most unusual cases or unusual specimens you've come across in your time in practice? Um, well, Specimens are, yeah, they're mostly kind of what you expect, to be honest. The most, not unusual, but the most complex specimens 
Mm. Um, a way you've got a different sort of group of organs because you've got a, you know a particular cancer growing in a particular way, and so the specimen looks different. And those are always the most challenging. Um, I would say the most surprising ones are where you think you know what you're looking for in the pathology, and then you, you investigate and you find something else going on entirely. Those are the most sort of peculiar cases. Mm. So I was just going to jump in and ask, um, have you worked or had any impact of a digital pathology at all, Joe? It sounds like that could be something that could be really useful yeah. and kind of empowering in your role. Absolutely. So for me, um, so where I work, part of a project for digital pathology, but, um, so there are other centres, uh, you know, I know are live and doing it diagnostically. But for me, my experience of it so far has been doing... Um, external sort of quality assessment because that's all online and has been for a number of years so and a lot of my revision for my exam was done online and so I kind of got my eye in in that respect but I'm really really excited for the future and what that could look like for me because it will revolutionize um I think it's the training you have to sort of almost retrain your eye you can sort of zip across a slide quite quickly when you're looking down a microscope and I think it's a different skill set almost being able to do that on screen. And I think that definitely takes practice, but I'm excited for that change. And also, you know, I'm excited for the flexibility that potentially brings as well, you know, in terms of working, remote working, being able to share cases more easily. So I'm excited for that when it comes. Brilliant. The final one of my questions before I passed over to Rob was, are you involved in any research outside of clinical practice? What kind of research do you do? I... I do actually work, um, I work with our upper gastrointestinal surgical team, actually. I've been involved with a few projects with them. And so these are larger, often national um, projects or or local projects that sort of run over our trust because we've got an affiliation with the University of Southampton as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I've got quite a good relationship, and we do with our clinical teams, where what we often do is, we provide the histopathological input. So often they're comparing um, A and B, but they also want to know what that looks like histo- uh, histopathologically. So that's generally been my involvement rather than actually sort of driving forward projects myself. Um, right. Although we have a research research department, you know, within my department. So it's quite nice being in a big centre because it affords that opportunity um, more easily. And I think if I worked in a small hospital okay that's really interesting to know okay well um i'll pass you over to rob now he's got some more questions brilliant yes joe um, i'm, I'm going to talk more about kind of health and well-being in the pandemic as opposed to the scientific side of things but um at the moment it's been kind of 12 months almost exactly since lockdown started and as we're speaking right now we've got boris johnson briefing mps about his roadmap I mean, how has your personal journey over the last year been? Um, Really, really challenging on a personal level. Um, And it's kind of, well, I started my consultant job in January 2020, Mm. before this started, with all these hopes and dreams and aspirations of the things I wanted to get done that I'd been planning for years. And then this happened and it changed everything for me on a, professional and a personal level. So, you know, I continued um, to work on site for many, many months. And then um, 
have had a period of working from home. Both of those have had their challenges and continue to have their challenges. Um, but the real thing for me that's changed is I realised that there are lots of things I can't do at the moment for personal reasons, but I can help other people. And, yeah. and actually, I could really easily focus on the things I can't do and the, my weaknesses, but I'm trying desperately to focus on um, the strengths that I have and the fact that I can support other people. And that's kind of started a journey into kind of well-being, inclusivity, those kind of things. And I've um, realised that I'm really, really interested in those things and I want to try and help. Um, and really, I mean, that started last March when my trust um, offered some psychological first aid training and I jumped at it. I think it's really important. Um, my sister doesn't work in the NHS, but she's a psychological first aider. She has a really important job and um, and is able to support people. And she gets a lot of value out of that. And I really look up to her in that respect. So I thought that's something I want to try and do as well. So when I had the opportunity, I just jumped at it really, and and it kind of developed there from there. And it was kind of what can we put in place to help colleagues. Um, within my department but also wider than that and also students are really strongly about that now it's like you know it's it's not just people I work with not just people in the NHS there's people everywhere associated with biomedical science that we should try and support and yeah so it's kind of not what I expected from the last year professionally or personally but it's really changed changed my outlook for sure and do you think you, you talked about those things that you were planning on doing when you first uh, took up the role in January? Are, are those things that have now completely been derailed or, or do you feel like you've just taken a new direction? Um, well, we weren't able to derail them because people still need to be trained. The work still needs to be done. You just have to find different ways of doing it, which is what we've been working really hard to do. Um, so it's kind of, I guess it's just my focus has changed and my focus was always on one path and it's just this other path has opened up and so I think my sort of attention is is in an in a, an unsuspected kind of area which is quite exciting as well to be honest. And, and tell us a bit more about that because I believe you have the, the, the title of a safe space practitioner. Mm. Uh, what, what does that role involve Joe? and what, what are the day-to-day -day things you're doing there? So it kind of, I think it's a path that my organisation are on. So in, in March, we were offered um, first aid sort of training, the psychological first aid. And then um, we were sort of called wellbeing champions. And it was basically just saying you were there. If somebody wanted to talk to you, if someone wanted to support, if someone was struggling, and it was kind of just an offer of a hand, really. And then what's happened, I think... I think we all thought that this would be a few months and would be wound and then we could all go back to normal. And I think that realisation that actually that's not the case and also this shouldn't, maybe shouldn't be a temporary thing. And maybe what we should actually do is look at culture and offer that hand of support all the time because actually then you're drifting away almost from wellbeing, you're drifting into sort of inclusivity and belonging. Um, which is really important in terms of culture. But, so as part of that journey, I think what's happened is 
they've now realized the training that they need to give people. There's lots of people in my organization that want help. So it's been brilliant because that they've wanted to help us as well. So um, they created training called psychological safe space training, um, which I completed along with a number of other people across the trust. It's not just a pathology thing, it's across the trust, a range of people. And as part of that, we basically have our names on the, the trust internet system um, with an offer of our hand if people need to contact us for supportive conversations and basically for a safe space. And that's as much a, a sort of a psychological safe space as having a physical safe space mm-hmm. and have a conversation. So it's being able to support each other and being able to listen and not tell people what to do, but just listen to their concerns and just give advice or ask questions on their behalf. Sometimes you just don't feel like you're in a place where you can do that yourself. So it's just, I, I see it personally as kind of holding my hand out to try and lift somebody else if, if they need it. And as part of that, you know, you've got us helping, but equally you've got people supporting us and lifting us up. So we have access to the trust psychologists, which is really really helpful so i've had access to a psychologist um for about a year now he's brilliant and we we catch up every so often we also have um support circles within the trust so managers and leaders um can access these and talk to peers who they might not have ever met um but who you know might be in a similar situation because it's really difficult when you're potentially struggling yourself but you're expected to be able to lead other people it's it's really really challenging and, and, and what type of issues are you finding coming up the most at the moment I'm, i assume that there's a lot around anxiety it's really really variable actually so there's definitely anxiety there's it's it's the uncertainty um and often it's it can be about things that are completely work work-based it can be the uncertainty, the constantly changing messages, the guidance that change, the not knowing when things are going to be normal again. But sometimes it's about things that are happening in your own life. Um, and it can be really, really small things, but because of the situation, they become amplified. Uh-huh. So often it's just unpicking them and, and working through them and trying to find different ways. And and that's that's kind of seems to be actually what this is about is identifying what the problem is and actually looking well how else can we do this what else can we do to support you and to and to help you rather than just saying well this is how we've always done something so the answer is no we can't do that um it's it's actually about finding new ways to approach problems i think and do you think we're we're going to see some systemic change with how the NHS and trusts kind of deal with with well-being and their employees health is this something where that journey you've started will continue after hopefully this pandemic doesn't exist anymore? Or is it something where the NHS will be like, ah, let's get back to our old ways. They were working all right before all this stuff. I really, really hope it's the former. Um, I don't see how it can go back to just assuming um, that things will go back to normal. Because actually what people are dealing with, this won't end, the day this ends. This will carry on for months, if not years, for people, all the things they're dealing with. But equally, all the amazing things that we've put in place over the last sort of 12 months, you know, in terms of flexible working, you know, teams and Zoom meetings, 
all of those things, you wouldn't want to unpick those things. There are lots of things that we've discovered that work better. Um, and I think, you know, mental well-being started to be talked about um, a year or two ago. Um, and I think this has just amplified it. And I don't think it could go back. But also you've got government guide, guidance now that talks about the people, you know, and makes it really clear that we need to think about the people and not just turnaround times, not just about results. If you don't have those things in place for the people, then you can't get the higher aspirations that you want for your organisation. So I can't honestly see any way it would go back. And I think this is, uh, and I think this is, um, and certainly within my trust, you know, that platform's being built now. There's there's real kind of change and you can, you can see it. And I think the frustrating thing for us is a lot of that is, you need to do in person. You need to talk to people. And that's really challenging at the moment. And if there are people from other trusts listening who think this all sounds great, I'd like these kind of support structures in place at our trust, but we don't have them at the moment. What should those people do, Joe? How should they go about getting these structures? Well, I mean, networking, isn't it? I mean, a lot of, we don't have all the answers, but people network and they go and find out, you know, good practice and where, what other places are doing. And one of the things um, I spend some time on, not so much at the moment, but I spend quite a bit of time on social media and I get lots of thoughts and ideas about, you know, good ways of doing things and different ways of doing things from Twitter, for example. But it can be a challenging place to be at the moment, but there are lots of great people on there sharing ideas, you know, and, and often actually I think it's looking outside the NHS. It's looking at other organisations and what they're doing because um, I don't think anyone's got it exactly right at the moment i think we're all just learning from each other so i would say have conversations with networks have a look at social media um read books i'm getting lots of learning from books at the moment i've been listening to a lot of podcasts a lot of books um trying to improve and trying to understand some of these issues because they're quite deep rooted i think and um a final question from me, Joe. In the next issue of the Biomedical Scientist, the April issue, you talk about the in, in the big question, you talk about some of the positive things that will and have come out of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. If, if there's one kind of long-term goal that you would like to see, if we're looking maybe 20 years down the line, something positive that's happened, what, what would you like that to be? Um, I Well, I think there are two key things. There's flexible working. I think it's really important because actually that's about people and our lives on Monday to Friday, nine to five. Um, and, you know, balancing life, you know, personal life and work is so hard. And um, I think that's kind of the main thing is that we understand and we appreciate and we respect flexible and remote working because it works. There are times when it's really good to not be remote but there are times when it's really, really efficient. And I, I would like to see a newfound kind of appreciation for that, um, to be honest. I guess, I guess that's my main thing. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is let's stop traveling everywhere and save time traveling to and from meetings, um, not just personally in terms of time, but for the environment. You know, I'm a big fan of that, of not spending so much time traveling. And I suppose one final quick question, actually. Do you find it tough in the morning to get out of your pyjamas and look a bit more formal when you're uh, working from home. I look a mess normally until about lunchtime when I, when I see myself in a mirror and think, oh God, you look dreadful. Now sort yourself out. 
No, I get up um, exactly the way I did, whether I'm working on site or whether I'm working at home, I do exactly the same. And I purposely wear more casual clothes at the weekend when I'm not working. So no, no change for me. And I think that's really important, actually, to kind of maintain that separation from your home life and your work life, even if you are working remotely. Brilliant. I'm going to pass it over to Jordan, Joe. It's International Women's Day on the 8th of March. And I know you've, um, you've been involved in some outreach work to do with this. And you've won a fellowship, um, a National Leadership Wise Fellowship for Women. Um, what can be done to empower girls and women into STEM careers? Well, um, it's funny because in, in sort of my field, quite a lot of women. So it's into the careers where we don't traditionally go. I think, you know, I think it's all about confidence and it's all about us knowing that we belong there mm. and that we can have the same opportunities. And you, unfortunately, often you do have to work harder for things. It's a fact. You know, you can't avoid that. But the more people do it, the, the more that won't be the normal, you know. And I think, I think that's the thing. But I think a lot of it comes down to assuming that this isn't for me. And not having the confidence to just sort of ask the question, well, why not? And to actually go for it. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I'm sort of quite on those lines of not having much confidence in myself sometimes and sort of doubting myself. And the way I've improved is, you know, the leadership course really, really helped me. But I also read a lot and I read books on sort of female empowerment to understand that actually I can, you know, be part of things that traditionally... Uh, it would seem that maybe it wasn't for me. So that leads us nicely into the quick fire question round. I'll start a sentence and you finish it off, Joe, with your answer. So here's your first sentence. My female science hero is... It's a lady called Elaine Cloutman Green. She's a healthcare scientist in London. And she inspires me every day because she just says, well, why not? And she just does it. And everything, every time you think, God, she's just done so much, she goes and does something else. Oh, lovely. Here comes your next sentence. My favourite pathogen is... It's still Helicobacter pylori. Why? Why? Because I see a lot of it um, in my GI work. Um, and it's just really pretty. And it just sort of sits in gastric mucus. And it's, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Hmm. Maybe we'll pop a picture in the show notes. Um, and uh, Rob's kind of covered this, the one positive thing that will come out of the pandemic. So I think... Yeah, flexible working, I think. And also, I, I've spent so much more time with my parents over the last year, you know, albeit virtually. And that was always something that I was frustrated with, mainly because I was always travelling from meetings. And not having to do that means I've had more family time. And that's just been amazing. Mm. Yeah. And what I was going to add is um, when lockdown comes to an end, the first thing I'm going to do is. Um, probably go to the cinema. <laughs> I really miss the cinema. It was my place. And in summer when it's really hot, I would just go there because I had air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I really, I love movies and I really, really miss that. Yeah. 
I've been catching all my movies on Netflix or Amazon these days. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Joe. Thanks for giving up your time. Thanks for having me. Welcome to March's Lab Life. And we're joined today by Cherie Beckett, who's a biomedical scientist in microbiology at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Harlow. Outside of the lab, she does a great amount of work to promote the profession and engage members. She hosts the IBMS Twitter chat each month and has worked with the children's charity Harvey's Gang and in 2019 won the Amazing Individual Award from an NHS Trust for her work trying to raise the profile of the profession. Hi, Cherie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So formally, before being a biomedical scientist, you're formerly a dancer um, and you did a degree in dancing science. How did you go from that to becoming a biomedical scientist? Yeah, I suppose I didn't really go the direct route to being a biomedical scientist. But then I think that's a great example because the routes to becoming a biomedical scientist aren't just linear. At a sports science, instead of doing the sports, we did dance. But then very early on in this degree, I thought, I really do love science, but I don't know where to go. Um, but committed to the decision, finished the degree, and then started looking at roles in the laboratory setting. Um, straight away, I realised this is absolutely what I wanted to do. I did an MVQ. I then embarked on a five-year part-time biomedical science degree within the trust on a, on a day release, graduated. But along the way, I was getting this. And uh, you'll probably be interested to know that I don't actually dance at all anymore. Not even Zumba. <laughs> <laughs> um so outside of the lab then, um, as we've heard, you've been incredibly active um, in promoting the profession. You, do, you work with us each month to do the IBMS chat. So can you tell us a bit about how you became involved in the IBMS chat uh, and the concept? So I was approached by our then director um, at my hospital within our directorate of cancer cardiology and clinical support. He'd seen me around on Twitter and wondered if I could do a Twitter chat. Um, and in this, I just posted a few tweets each day as to what I do as a biomedical scientist. Now, alongside that time, um, a good friend and colleague of mine, Danny Gaskin, um, who's also very vocal within the IBMS, um, he took over the NHS Twitter handle. Um, back then, it was um, uh, an opportunity. Uh, for members within the NHS to just showcase their their role within uh, whichever specialism that they're in, not just in, in science and in the laboratory setting. Um, and I started to get really inspired. And I think I threw a, a message to um, communications at the IBMS at the time and said, do you know what? I wonder if we could do some sort of Twitter chat because I started to get an awful lot of engagement, as did Danny at the time. And, and Danny was the first co-host alongside me. Um, and I thought, you know, UK run chat, do something very similar. I think there's something very similar with nurses. Um, and uh, most recently, um, our NHS people have done different Twitter chats. And I just thought at the time, do you know what? I wonder if this would work, that we could get everyone almost in the same room for an hour to just have a chat. You know, it's so hard in the laboratory setting to to network with people when you've got the barriers of hierarchy, you've got the barriers of geography and, and, and the physical sense. Um, but I just thought, do you know what? 
let's see if it works. And our first chat, I think, was advice for aspiring biomedical scientists, which is, you know, totally the right topic for me to host as the first chat because it's so much about inspiring people to come into our profession, to stay in our profession. Um, and it really worked. So the concept is, is very, very simple in, in, in its terms, to be honest. Um, we yeah. meet once a month. Um, we've honed in on the date of every, the first Wednesday of every month. Um, we meet online for an hour, which often extends many hours late into the night and, and the next day and the day after that. Um, and we have a loosely set topic. Um, more recently, we've had looser topics, so health and well-being. Um, and then sometimes we have particular specialisms. So this week, we're going to be looking at progression in our profession and that it's not just linear and you can't just aspire to be in, in laboratory management. There's so many different options but what I love about it is that it's just really blossomed um and I get messages sometimes oh my goodness I didn't make the live event I'm absolutely gutted but the beauty of it and when hopefully we all try to remember is that because that hashtag so I-B-M-S-C-H-A-T is in every single message at any one point people can click on that hashtag and flick through the chat so you don't always have to attend live but as I say it really humbles me when people say oh I can't believe I missed it or oh, I'm really looking forward to it when's the next one that from such a simple idea we've 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 helped develop a network which which is great it's become a, quite an important space for members to kind of share their feelings and I guess de-stress yeah. especially during the pandemic what do you do outside of your work in the lab and of your work to promote the profession to relax that's a good question <laughs> the real Shireen really enjoys reading um I got a new book this week called The Prison Doctor which you might think hey it's not so far away from from health perhaps um but it's nice to just completely get engrossed in a book and forget um I really enjoy running um I'm not your fastest runner and I'll never be your longest distance runner <laughs> but I love that you can just put your music on as loud as you can listen to um and you can kind of get that downtime so I actually live really close to where I work so it means that I don't get that car journey or that train journey to just switch off so it's nice to just go out and kind of de-stress because although that we don't meet our patients it doesn't mean that I'm not stressed about the day or I don't take things home with me um Mm. And I love baking. Um, apparently at work, my brownies are legendary. Um, they're an adaptation of Jamie Oliver's, I think they're called Blooming Brilliant Brownies. You also have done some work with Harvey's gang to help people understand what happens when their sample reaches the laboratory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did for that? Um, involved. So I was approached with about five minutes to spare, having a coffee in our tea room by the haematology manager. He said, Cherie, we've got this young man coming in. Um, he's part of Harvey's gang. He's got to have this particular blood test, which is a virology blood test, just in terms of monitoring um, his illness um, you know, with, I think it was leukemia. Um, and uh, would you just show him around the department? Um, so he came in, met his mom, his dad, his oncology nurse, um, and they said, uh, right, this is Cherie, and you've come to see her department because you're having such and such blood tests today. 
And that was it. He literally just fell apart sobbing. I sat there and I thought, oh, my goodness, in this five minutes before I met him, I started conjuring up how I was going to show him around. You know, I'm such a, a planner that mm. everything went out the window and I just thought, what am I going to do? And he was literally inconsolable. And I just thought, you know what? What if he was my child? What if he was my niece, my nephew? How would I just go right back to basics and just be the human that I am? Um, so I got a pipette out um, and we started pipetting water. He actually thought it was hilarious to use it as a water pistol. Um, and within that, I managed to weave in some of the common themes about antibody and antigen testing, all very, very basic, uh, but that seemed to grab his imagination. And at the end of it, he was smiling, he was joking, he thanked me for my time. And I just thought, you know what, in those five minutes, five, ten minutes, I was able to really make a difference. And hopefully when he had his blood test afterwards, it wasn't so scary. You know, I showed him precisely the amount of blood that we would need, um, which was probably about, oh, I don't know, 0.1 mil, which could be a fingerprint blood test. So it was really about trying to demystify why he needed to have a blood test and why it was so important that if he didn't have this blood test, in layman's terms, this might happen or this is how it would benefit his treatment. And to be thanked at the end of it, I just thought, you know what? Cancer and leukemia is devastating, whatever the age you are. But in a child that can't really understand who's perhaps being pinned down by a parent to have the continual test, I just made it that little bit easier, even just for that day. It just, you know, and even now I'm getting goosebumps on my arms. It's just, it, it really does make you feel like you make a difference. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's your day off, so thank you so much for... <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye. <laughs>